The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. We need to talk. It's the memoir of Dr. Tony Holohan, the former chief medical officer, a man with whom we became incredibly familiar during the COVID crisis. Uh, Tony Holohan, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Now, I have to ask you first, why did you decide to write the book? Did you feel that you needed to explain yourself in a way that as a civil servant, you never could? Well, first and foremost, there's a story about Emer, sure. about what happened to her and her diagnosis that she wanted to have told. Uh, there were a number of parts of that that were important to her. In the first instance, there were delays in her diagnosis, perhaps somewhat inevitable and understandable because a diagnosis like multiple myeloma under the age of 50 is not common. But those delays caused her probably very significant additional symptoms, caused her significant upset. She and pain. That, and, and, and substantial pain over many, many years. She wanted to have that story told because she thought the telling of that story might help other people, enable other people to maybe avoid going through some of what she now, went through. she did write a very detailed letter to the Medical Council. And to, to the, the hospital. To, to the hospital, yes. first of all, yes. Uh, and this was a letter of complaint about what happened to her when they were attempting to diagnose whatever was wrong. Yes. They didn't know it was multiple myeloma. And the, the the hospital kind of kicked for touch. Yeah, it was 2012. She'd experienced symptoms over a period of time. They gave us some cause for concern. We're both doctors. But she received substantial reassurance in the hospital from an initial visit in around June and then a subsequent visit. And I, I was reading back in the referral letter that I wrote myself to the hospital in late August, only a couple of months ago. I hadn't read it in some time. And I was really surprised, having reread it, at just how you know, significant her symptoms were, how clearly I expressed concern and so on. And yet she was further reassured. And I guess, and I have to live with this, we did take some reassurance from the reassurance that she received, hoping, obviously, that that, that things weren't uh, as, as serious as they turned out to be. And alas, within a couple of weeks, she was in fact diagnosed mm. then with multiple Now, myeloma. she went through a number of EDs and you have praise uh, for certain named ones. You don't mention the ED to which she complained. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to identify cause difficulty for anybody, more to try to highlight the fact that like people, like persistence in terms of symptoms and, and, and if, if you have concerns, to continue to articulate those. Like doctors, health services uh, uh, are not infallible. Like the sciences, the people, the systems and so on are not perfect. Uh, and, and mistakes can happen. And it is important that patients feel empowered to say, look, I am worried and I am concerned and to address those concerns. And I think the thing that we have, I have to live with is the fact that perhaps if I had done that a little bit more mm. in the face of the reassurance we received, perhaps I could have yeah. avoided we it. We couldn't have changed the ultimate diagnosis and outcome. We know that it was a terminal disease, but the clinical course that she had mm. was very, very painful over many, many and years. It might have been less painful. And that's, that's, that's what yeah. we believe. Now, now, three years was the... the prognosis, yeah. eight and a half years was the reality. Yeah. I mean, at the time of her diagnosis, I mean, if, if you had told me three years, I think we would have taken that, given yeah. our concerns. Uh, and it turned out to be eight and a half wonderful years, thanks in the main to Paul Brown, Professor Paul Brown, the haematologist in St. James's who looked after Emer for, for, for those years. He gave us, as I've said in the book, the gift of life and enabled Emer to see both of our children to adulthood. Um, when um, she wrote that letter of complaint to the ED uh, and to the hospital Yes. Over which had power over the ED. Um, she didn't get a satisfactory reply. Do you think there's a kind of a group think um, that operates in hospitals generally? You know, we're a team, attack one of us, you attack us all. So therefore, we cannot easily admit error. 
I think error is difficult for all of us to admit, for sure. Um, uh, but these are learning opportunities in the first. And that's really where we were coming from. This wasn't to try to f- find fault in the sense of causing a difficulty for any individual practitioner. But maybe there were systems and ways of doing things that could be improved that might help to prevent mm. things like this happening again. That's really what we attempted to, to try to highlight. Uh, and the response of the hospital in that context was a little disappointing. They directed us more towards another recourse, either towards the medical council or perhaps even without suggesting so, a legal recourse. We were never going to go down yeah. either of those routes. We wanted the hospital in the first instance to, if you like, embrace the opportunity to look at their systems and see was there something they could learn from that might help to improve things in the future. Yeah. That ultimately is the essence of, of, of the purpose of, of, of why Ema wrote the letter. Now, when you became uh, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer and ultimately became the Chief Medical Officer, uh, you write in the book that you had to learn to work with the civil service. Yes, like any organisation, <laughs> like any system, it has its so, culture. And, and, and you know, but a civil servant could be uh, someone who really loves agriculture but ends up in the Department of Health or really loves uh, economics and ends up in the Department of Defence. Do you know what I mean? That, that One size fits all. And yet you're dealing with a very uh, technical area. Your whole area of, of public health is, is highly technical. It is, and, and, and you're right. But one of the wonderful things, the civil service at its best, it has wonderful generalists. And sometimes in society, I think that like we forget that if you like, generalism is a specialty all of its own. The people who can adapt and operate in all sorts of different environments and operate with different expertises and people are, are, are the best kinds of civil servant, servants. And I worked with absolutely wonderful civil servants. But no more than any organisation, it has its rules and its systems and its ways of doing things. I came from a clinical background, from a, the health services, and it took time to learn uh, mm. that like getting things done isn't as straightforward, isn't as, 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 as easy as perhaps it can be in clinical settings. Now, you faced uh, with challenges straight away, um, dioxin. Yes. I mean, this is an extraordinary story that we've all kind of forgotten, but pretty draconian action had to be taken. Well, we didn't know whether it had to be taken. It was taken, some criticism, but ultimately it was the right decision. What did you do? Well, I did an interview for the job on the Thursday and on the Saturday lunchtime, before I'd actually started the job, I got a phone call from the then Minister, Mary Harney, telling me that there was an issue in relation to pork meat and to get in as quickly as I could to the Department of Agriculture where where, where we had all gathered. And ultimately, we very quickly uh, issued a recommendation that... Um, all pork products be removed from the shelves because we knew there was some contamination. We couldn't identify how extensive that contamination was. And so all pork products had to be treated as potentially uh, uh, at risk. We then had to issue significant public notices. I did a special Morning Ireland show on, that was that was broadcast for the purpose on the Sunday morning, very unusually, uh, to try to raise the awareness of people who might have bought pork products, ham, pate or, or sausages or rashers or whatever, to not consume them. While in parallel, we did a detailed risk assessment of the likely exposure. Now, we, we, we were able to satisfy ourselves that we would have needed a continuous exposure over a long period of time for that to likely cause significant health issues. But still, uh, but the, the, the argument was see, you're damaging Irish pork globally. Oh, that yes, was the we, argument. And, and that argument was put... Uh, and, and there was cases being put to me that I should be that trying to do something to, if you like, restore the reputation in marketing terms. But my focus was clearly public health and trying to in the, ensure in the first instance mm. in our communications that we, 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 we issued advice the public could follow that would, would, would help 
to protect them. Uh, and within a couple of days, the shelves were empty, if you recall. It was the, mm. a couple of weeks before Christmas. Uh, uh, fresh, if you like, uncontaminated pork meat was back on the shelves and, and, and confidence was maintained. There was a backdrop to this in Belgium. A similar incident a number of years previously had caused very substantial difficulty for the then, the equi- my equivalent, as well as the Minister for Health in terms of how they handled it. So I think we handled it well mm. in this country. Uh, another crisis that came along... Um, Again, COVID has swamped so many of the the challenges that you faced, but the swine flu uh, challenge, and once again, vaccines came to the rescue, but there was a downside. Vaccines came to the rescue. We had a very significant challenge uh, with, um, particularly in younger children. It was different to what we've seen with COVID. Young children in particular were exposed. because Older people, it seems, had some sort of immunity. Exactly. Perhaps because they'd been exposed to something like this before. You're right, Pat. So there was some level of immunity that we didn't then see subsequently in COVID. And it was our paediatric hospitals, in particular paediatric intensive care. People have kind of forgotten the second winter, 2009, 2010, there was enormous pressure in the intensive care capacity in our children's hospitals to the point that a lot of very important, urgent, like like children's cardiac surgery, had to be restrained uh, because of the impact of that disease on our intensive care units. Mm. But uh, we did get we, we did get an effective vaccine uh, and we did put in place control measures and we got through that. But there were side effects of that vaccine and uh, I believe settlements have been made to people who suffered from young people, particularly narcolepsy. But I remember at the time there were people who said, no, couldn't possibly happen. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, and you mean about the side effect? Yeah, and so so uh, after the vaccine became available, and th- when it had gone through all of the trials and so on, there was a challenge which was reported in relation to narcolepsy. Uh, the measures we put in place first and foremost was to not require that people prove that their child's narcolepsy or their concerns about their child resulted from their child's vaccine. We would put in place services to get an early diagnosis and ensure for those children that they got access to ready treatment. So a pathway of care was built very, very quickly to try to ensure that people were diagnosed. Then initially through a, a consultant called Catherine Crow, who did a lot of the national diagnosis. So we put in place a very effective care pathway and worked well with the patient organisation Sound, as they were called at the time, to help to put together Has that all been services. put to bed? Well, uh, or are there still legal challenges about um, the, state, the, the, the swine flu vaccine? The State Claims Agency has been managing on behalf, as it does of all public services, the, the legal aspects of this. But the clinical services have enhanced very, very significantly for, for anybody who's been through that. And if there's anybody listening who's, who, 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 who has a concern from a clinical point of view, there are excellent both paediatric and adult services in place now for, for children with narcolepsy. Now, all during these various crises, you're handling your own uh, domestic uh, crisis, but you're also doing things like GAA training. You know, life extraordinarily goes on in spite of the professional and personal challenges. Yes, and I was doing no more in my community than lots of other people do. I strongly believe in the value of volunteering and I had an opportunity to do that with my my local GA club. And of course, for any of us who've had children, it's a great way of maintaining your relationship and your closeness with your kids. You're bringing them to, you're you're going to be bringing them to these kinds of events in any case. So I did have the opportunity to do those kinds of things as part of the... uh, Yeah, but as I say, it's it's that mixture of trying to get, uh, I suppose, if you go to training, GA training, your head gets cleared. It, it, it absolutely gets cleared. It was one of the things I always like to say that like when once you get a whistle in your hand and you're dealing with sort of 40, 10 year olds, they don't know who you are, whether you're a radio presenter <laughs> or a chief medical officer. They just take you as they find you. Uh, and that's wonderfully refre- refreshing. Now, the, the, the biggest, I suppose, problem that you had was the cervical check problem before COVID. 
And um, that arose because audits were being done on the results of people uh, who had been diagnosed with cervical cancer and whether or not that cancer might have been detected earlier. Uh, And I know in the discussions on this programme, we talked about the lack of clarity that screening is not diagnosis. Screening is about the bigger population and mistakes will happen. But could some of those mistakes have been avoided in, you know, by not uh, outsourcing cytology, for example, by doing it locally? Or is it the name of the game that these things happen statistically? Well, you've described it accurately. And there's so few people who really have good grasp in the way that you've just articulated what happened here. The retrospective audit was conducted on people who'd already had a diagnosis of cancer. The purpose of it was to see, was there an opportunity missed in the course of that person's treatment to have picked up earlier uh, or, or to have done something differently? And the purpose of that was to educate and improve the standards so that for people coming into the programme in the future, that there was a greater chance of things working. The reality is the test that's at, at issue here, which is the pap smear, was a good test, but far from a perfect test. Uh, And it was a screening test and it was applied to a portion of people. And the way cervical screening works is it says to you as a woman, if you enter the screening programme, you have regular smears through this and those are done in accredited labs, as was the case in this country. The the, the outsourced labs, uh, and there's been a lot of controversy about those, did not fail in terms of the actual standards that were applied. Uh, um, we wouldn't have been able to start a screening programme because we did not have the laboratories in this country to do the scale of screening that had to be done. We were able to start a screening programme in 2008. Mary Harney was able to get the resources from government at the time when, as you you recall very well, we were broke and we had no money and yet money was found to start this programme. And a big part of that was because Grania Flannelly, who was the clinical director, had made a huge impression on all of us, including the minister. Having come back from the UK where she had trained, she talked about her shock at seeing young women with late presentations of cervical cancer with young families finding themselves facing a terminal diagnosis. And this was uh, this, this was a complete difference to her experience yeah. where she trained in the UK. Now, uh, the, I, I suppose the, the cat got out of the bag because there had been a commitment to tell people who were being audited that, you know, about the, their results. Yes. Um, but some uh, clinicians didn't agree with that and didn't do it, actually. That's correct. Um, and this was a problem. But there had been a commitment from Cervical Check that this would happen. And that didn't happen. Yes. And that's at the core of it. And there was clearly a commitment uh, uh, made and women understood that they would receive that information and then they didn't. And, and, and that was at the heart, if you like, of the breach of trust. Uh, and there probably wasn't a strong enough system to determine centrally at cervical check that the, the information that they provided to the clinicians and that they expected to be passed on to the mm-hmm. patients was in fact passed but on. But wasn't it, it about uh, explaining to them maybe that they had been missed, but it wouldn't have changed the course of their treatment. Correct. It was about, and and for many of the clinicians, it was an understandable concern because you could be talking about individuals with early stage cancer that was effectively treated many years previously and now they were getting a result that they were expected to to give back to a patient that would have had made, made no material difference and in a lot of situations might have actually caused a lot of upset and concern on the part of those patients, which is one of the reasons why many other countries do not, not only do they not do this, they have laws that prevent the sharing of this information. Now, countries like the Netherlands and Canada. When you shared this with the then Minister for Health, Simon Harris, uh, he jumped the gun. He decided, I'm announcing, whether you like it or not, an HSE inquiry. 
And you're critical of him for that. So a HSE inquiry was announced and that didn't ultimately take place. I mean, within 24 hours, it was very clear that that was not adequate. Did you try to stop him saying, hang on a second, well, let's, let's do I the investigation? And some people have inferred that that was me trying to stop the Scali inquiry because I didn't want the screening programme investigated. Quite the opposite. What I wanted to do was to ensure that we understood what it was we were investigating. And so we spent that full weekend in the screening programme offices and over the course of the work that we did, engaging with hospitals around the country by Sunday of that weekend. This is, I'm talking about a Friday to Sunday. We established that somewhere in the region of 200 people were, were, uh, who, who should have had uh, uh, results fed back to them. Three quarters of them had not. And that was the first time that knowledge was assembled. And now we had and a clear And where does the blame for that lie? I mean, was it a cervical check? I mean, you say that Gronia Flannelly was treated very badly. She had to resign. Yes. Um, but was it uh, uh, at her door that that lack of communication has to be laid. Like the way I'd like to look at it personally would be that like we had a really good screening programme. There were faults, of course, with it. Uh, Gabriel Scali has done an excellent report which has identified a number of the improvements that have now been made. Uh, uh, that screening programme sought to introduce another layer of improvement which was the, the audit and then the feeding back of that information. Arguably, it wasn't done as well as it could have been. It could have been planned for better. There could have been clear buy-in for the clinicians before it commenced. And there should have been probably an audit loop that the centre was able to tell that the information had in fact been given back. So results were being posted out to clinicians and then not being fed back to the women. And the centre had no way of knowing that that was the case. And that was really at issue. And it was only on that Sunday afternoon, the work that we did over the course of that weekend, the team that I led, that we went up, uh, that went up to the screening programme officers assemble that information for the first time. And now we had a basis for the scale of investigation that ultimately became now, the Scali There report. were so many campaigners, including the late Vicky Phelan, uh, about all of this. Um, would anything that you, uh, that was done, if you like, by cervical check have changed the course of her illness? Uh, I, I, I'm not privy to the details of Vicky's illness uh, and, and, and her clinical management. But in the main, for people who are through the programme, this was not about information or finding information for the purpose of change in the clinical course of their individual illness. It was about trying to identify, that's the purpose of the audit, identify whether opportunities to improve the programme could be taken yeah. that would make it better for women in the future. Now, the programme is better now because the test is, it, that is used uh, for the, the, the smears is, is uh, different. Um, and it's also better, if, if, forgive me, Pat, uh, because we now also have HPV immunisation. We've been immunising young girls and now young boys for, for, for over 10 years or almost 10 years uh, with HPV vaccines. So we have two really effective, so we have HPV vaccination and HPV screening and we're well on the way to effectively eliminating cervical cancer, the only cancer we can actually say this about. So we're really in a strong position now in this country compared to where we were. Do you think, though, that the public is any better uh, aware of the fact that, you know, what screening is versus diagnosis? Because that's a key. It should have been writ large on every form, be it breast check or cervical check or whatever check we might introduce. It should be writ large. This is not a diagnosis. This is screening. This is a public health measure, not a not a personal individual measure. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, I, I'm not confident that the public understands this a lot better. There are many parts of the medical profession where this is not well understood. 
the materials that have been produced by the cancer screening service, second to none on a global scale in, in terms of how they explain this. And anybody who's interested in reading further into this, the writings of Daniel Murray in the Sunday Business Post are exemplary in terms of detailed understanding of the nature of this. Anybody who wants to an authoritative account of this, uh, that's the place to go. Now, we take you to Dillinger's restaurant in Renla. And this was, uh, if you like, uh, in a sense, the, the last happy supper, wasn't it, before COVID? It was, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know that at the time, that, that we were in Dillinger's restaurant for what ultimately would prove to be our final restaurant, restaurant meal as a family. And they were all, as I'm sure, in your own family and many people who were listening in their families, special events, birthdays in restaurants, treats, as it were. Uh, and this was the final one for us because of the combination, ultimately, of Emer's illness, but also the advent of, of COVID. Yeah. Um, you, you remark in your book that you had a, you'd heard about this Wuhan um, virus that was out there and you said to yourself, I'll be dealing with this in a while. You didn't realise to what extent you might be dealing with it. I don't think any of us you know, could foresee the, the scale and, you know, what, how long it would go on, how significant a challenge it would be for many of our societies. But we didn't doubt, even from the earliest stages, that this was going to be a challenge for us. I had been through SARS uh, back at the time of the Special Olympics in the early 2000s when I was a relatively recently appointed deputy CMO and I was also through swine flu. I understood the potential of these, uh, not only to, to spread, but to spread quickly and facilitated by by international travel uh, and by by, by globalisation. Um, the, the, the swine flu epidemic took uh, six weeks from the point at which it was first noticed to the point at which it was declared a pandemic. So I knew we had a relative short period of time and we'd start to see cases. Much of the reporting in the early days was about something in China and people believing that the risks were all confined there, but we, we knew differently. Um, and it was uh, April, I think, before you got the call from Ronald Glenn saying, we have our first case. No, actually, in fact, that was the, that was the 29th of February. Oh, the, 29th it was, of February. Yeah, it was, the, it was the leap year. Leap day. Leap day, leap day exactly. Leap day. Um, the, the, what was going on, of course, was uh, the Taoiseach was heading off to New York. Yes. We had Cheltenham, which went ahead yes. and people were not kind of cautioned against going to Cheltenham. And yet we were scared that any places where you had congregations of people was going to be disastrous. And so it turned out. Uh, absolutely. And ultimately, this disease is spread by people in contact with one another. And many of the measures that we put in place, you know, you could argue uh, the question around the timing of those. Could we have put some of those measures in place? What we at an earlier stage, what we were trying to ensure is that we first of all followed what the science was saying. Second of all, that was followed what both ECDC and WHO were recommending uh, and that we didn't, if you like, um, um, uh, move out of step with what either the science or the international advice was saying. And in those early stages, there was strong advice against the imposition of, if you, if you recall, international travel prohibitions and all of that, the maintenance of open borders. Mm. The reality is in Ireland, uh, we're a small island economy. We're entirely uh, enmeshed, as it were, with both the UK, with whom we, we have a common travel area, but also Europe, culturally, legally, politically, and every other way, mm -hmm. and socially. Um, looking back on it, the things that might have been done better, I mean, we had uh, people being discharged from hospitals into nursing homes, and it was for many of them a death sentence. Yeah, but, but and, and a lot has been spoken about that. And there was uh, measures in place to attempt to test people prior to discharge. But the nursing homes, uh, not just in this country, became a very significant focus of, of, of infection, uh, a place of substantial mortality, unfortunately, and sadly for people uh, who lost uh, loved ones. Much of, the in, much of the epidemic in nursing homes happened 
long after that point, long after the point at which visitation to nursing homes was was was. Yeah. But was you had ceased, uh, agency staff, for example, working in different nursing homes. Yes, and cross contaminating. Yes, and and like the reality is, nursing homes cannot be fully sealed off from the community. We had raging infection levels in the community, in, and to, it's impossible to completely protect uh, when you have such high levels of community transmission. So the first thing we must do and, and did do effectively and quickly was 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 uh, limit community transmission. And then we focused substantially on nursing homes and putting in place specific measures to try yeah. to protect nursing it, homes as much as we could. Wasn't that a bit slow, though? Well, in, you could say that in retrospect. And like the, the, the understanding, if you like, of asymptomatic transmission, we didn't have in those days. Anything that we can do to try to eliminate or address the risk that exists, because look, the truth of it is, Pat, and it's, it's a hard thing to say, if we had set about designing a model of care to place older people at greater risk, we couldn't have done much better than building the model of nursing home care that we had. And that's something we, we must address into the future. Yeah. Uh, flu, most winters, is also a challenge in those significant yeah. environments. So we have to have a conversation about this as a, as a society, about how we look after our older mm -hmm. people. Because this, this COVID infection, we can say that it was caused by SARS-CoV-2, and that's, that's technically true. But it was, it was caused by inequality. People who were in the greatest risks, whether they were older or had underlying illnesses, and people who were marginalised from the point of view of uh, economic uh, circumstances, living in crowded accommodation. These are the people who suffered the burden of this infection. Yeah. Um, some of the things that on this programme we criticise Neffet for, and this is a huge body of uh, expertise. Yes. Um, masking. We were advocating masking very early on. Once it became clear it was an airborne infection. The second thing was antigen testing. We were advocating antigen testing you know, for very specific uses. And we remember Philip Nolan uh, comparing them to snake oil. Um, I, I know that uh, there, there is an intention on the part of government to to have an inquiry and to have an investigation for the purpose of trying to establish how we might better learn. And I've no difficulty with looking at, at, at some of these questions about the timing and so on. I know in relation to masks, and I don't want to get into trying to defend the specific issues, but we introduced our mask mandates in this country before there were general recommendations from the WHO. So we were looking at all of these these different things, but it's it, with, with the benefit of hindsight, for sure we can find things that we could have yeah should have and perhaps will do again in the future. And the issue with antigen tests wasn't so much the test, but how they were understood by the public. And I would still contend... But, but they became the go-to test. But they are still poorly used and poorly understood. People will take the test, but when they have a negative test, will still continue to go out and about on the basis that they have a negative antigen test, even if they have streaming runny noses. That is not how they should be used. That was always my concern. It wasn't about the test per se, but it was how somebody interpreted that test and how it informed their behaviour. Um, one of the areas that uh, where, again, you criticised government was that meaningful Christmas that they determined we should all have and therefore hospitality opens. And, and you're saying that the Irish public are not sophisticated, really. Once the pubs are open, yippee. Well, I think in this country, probably true in other societies as well, but it's a fairly good signal that if you're told that it's OK to go into crowded pubs, that you can infer that everything else is safe as well. Uh, and at the time, we did not feel that that was the right course. Uh, we did look at the time of trying to find a way of easing measures for families and, in, and, and enabling more visitation just around the Christmas period because this was our second Christmas going through COVID restrictions as a society. And that was a concern for us and people's adherence to what were very, very difficult measures. But look, the reality is, I say those things, but I have to set it against the fact that in this country, we had wonderful solidarity that went 
from the top of the political system right the way to, to every corner of society. And that was one of the reasons why our excess mortality, our vaccination rates, our hospitalisation rates in this country are among the best in Europe. We've been commended for this in, in international objective, independent reports in The Lancet and by the WHO. Um, you do talk about a leaker within NEFET. And um, you also, in your acknowledgements, thank a whole pile of people in NEFET. I'm wondering, and I haven't done the exercise, could I figure out who the leaker was by looking at the list, the membership of NEFET and the acknowledgements at the end of the book? You're, you're a bright man. I'd never say that you couldn't work something out uh, deductively and logically. But I, I'm not on any kind of mission to identify anybody. I simply wanted to convey a sense of how I felt about the, the challenge that that created for me. In my leadership, when I tried to engage, for example, with our minister or with the Taoiseach and Tónaiste, and this was happening, I found it incredibly undermining. Uh, mm. and, and that was what I was trying to convey. I'm not trying to identify anybody or cause. Mm. And for the most part in this book, and while there have been some things highlighted, I'm not trying to cause difficulties for anybody. Mm. I'm simply trying to tell the story as it related to my experience. Um, finally, I should ask you about uh, your new partner in life. Yes, Kira uh, Cronin. Kira Cronin. And she was in the Late Late Show audience. She was. I was wondering, did you feel that you had to share that? Because otherwise, you know, the media would sooner or later catch the pair of you at a GA match or something and out you. Was that, uh, you know, because you didn't have to. You could have yeah. maintained a privacy around I, that. I could have. But uh, I, I, to be honest, I didn't think like that. It was something that I was happy to share. It was an important part of my life in the same ways. And I talked uh, in the book and I do about how Emer has helped to enable this because she wrote letters to me as well as to the children and talked in those letters about the importance for her of seeing me move on uh, and find new love and new relationships and 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 happiness and uh, and she spoke to her own siblings about that and in in many ways i see emer as having helped to enable this in mm. in, in, my, in my life and 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 i'm really grateful for that not to mention a new dog that <laughs> comes into your life uh, vicariously. Anyway, exactly. Uh, the book is a, a great read. I've been reading it over the weekend. It's called We Need to Talk. It's a memoir from Dr. Tolly Holman, uh, the former CMO. We didn't have time to talk about the secondment and all the rest. People can read it all for themselves in the book. Tony Holman, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you very on the much, Pat. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.